One of the misconceptions is that going through a transgender surgery comes with a measurable degree of uh, potential buyer's remorse. The fact is that patients who are trans feel differently gendered from a very, very early age, which empirically suggests that this is a biological process and not a psychological process. They're extremely unlikely to ever regret that decision. This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, where you don't have to be queer to be here. Outcasting is produced in New York by Media for the Public Good, online at outcastingmedia.org. Hi, I'm Karis. On this edition of Outcasting, we take a look at issues faced by transgender people in getting appropriate health care because of problems in the healthcare system. Joining us for this discussion are Dr. Marcy Bowers, a transgender surgeon in California who treats trans patients, and attorney Michael Silverman. Much of this program was created before the start of the COVID pandemic, but when we recorded these interviews, Michael was the executive director of the Transgender Legal Defense and Education Fund. We also talked with Jessica, Billy Ray, and Brittany three transgender women who have experienced difficulties in dealing with the healthcare system. This is the second part of a two-part series. If you missed the first part, you can listen to it at outcastingmedia.org. When we left off last time, our guests were talking about biases among healthcare professionals and how that can affect the ability of trans people to get the medical care they need. So is it safe for trans people to be open about the realities of their bodies in medical settings? We've heard that coming out to their doctors can expose trans people to bias, or worse, but not coming out can compromise the quality of their health care because it keeps doctors uninformed about aspects of trans people's bodies or health needs. Dr. Bowers. If you don't come out to your health care provider, you're really covering up some of your basic medical background. And so it's important, for example, to know that for a male to female, for their provider to know that they have a prostate even though the incidence of prostate cancer in post-operative trans persons is very, very low, it's still important to know that it's there. You don't have a uterus to worry about. You don't have ovaries. You don't have gonads. So what is my bone density going to be like over the years? Family history is going to be important because there can be differences there. Same with a trans man. You know, if he doesn't expose himself to a genital examination, well, the doctor may not know that he needs a pap smear every so often. The doctor may need to know that he has ovaries inside or a cervix. So these are all things that if you're not going to come out to your healthcare provider, I think you're probably doing yourself a disservice by not having your provider know about what your physical needs might be. Some trans people's alienation from the healthcare system can even cause them to turn away from it entirely, possibly avoiding doctors and other health professionals and resorting to the black market for hormones and other treatments. These can pose serious health risks. Michael Silverman. Sometimes when people cannot get the health care that they need through mainstream channels, they will find themselves in dire circumstances where they need health care and they will find someone to provide it. Often that might mean finding hormones on the black market, which may or may not be safe. And when they're unsafe, the consequences can be quite bad. People need to get care from professionals who are competent, 
trained and equipped to provide that care. So there are serious adverse health effects associated with getting any kind of black market medical care. And this is true whether the patient is transgender or not transgender. It's just that we find more transgender people resorting to that kind of care when their insurance companies either won't pay for the care that they're supposed to receive or they can't find providers who will treat them in a competent and respectful way. Dr. Bauer said that this type of alienation, or avoidance of the healthcare system, can particularly affect people who may be medically at risk. If they're not already engaged in an ongoing relationship with someone who's taking care of them, yeah, they may be hesitant to want to wanna go in. But I would say most of the poor health care tends to fall in areas where there's already poor health care in those populations in general. That's in minority populations, inner cities, youth, things like that. They're, they're not used to accessing health care, and uh, they don't have many health care resources anyway, just as a matter of their socioeconomic status, and so that continues to be a problem. And the effects of bad health care access and treatment can compound the difficulties. Having gender dysphoria is already something that can cause significant struggle along with the discrimination trans people face in other parts of society. Discrimination in the healthcare system only adds to these other stressors, making it even more essential that the healthcare system get better at treating trans patients. Again, Dr. Bowers. One of the things that has actually really opened up the, the eyes and began to get some of the government stance to change was the realization a few years ago in 2009 when the National Center for Transgender Equality published a study of more than 6,000 trans people that showed that almost 50% at one point had thought of or attempted suicide. That was really a high number. And then the overall suicide rate being so high amongst transgender youth was also an eye-opener. But every study that you look at the transgender population shows a population that continues to experience extreme forms of discrimination in job situation especially, Transgender persons tend to be underemployed or unemployed, and they face great obstacles in accessing health care. And on and on and on and on. There's just a lot of, it's still a very difficult environment for trans persons. Jessica told us about her evolving experience of learning to accept her identity as a trans person. My life was a, a struggle at a very young age, I knew. I had a very, very difficult time growing up because I hated being who I was. And so my, you know, I would do things to deter my mind from constantly dreaming of being a member, being a female. And, you know, went from everything from stamp collecting to sports. I almost became, you know, a professional soccer player when I was a young age because I came obsessed with different activities as a way to discourage myself from this constant dream of being who I wanted to be. I was introduced to alcohol at a young age. I became an alcoholic at a very young age, 13, 14, 15 years old. And then when I was 17 years old, I met a girl. I was a boy and I started dating a girl and I told her that I wanted to become a girl and you know, become who I want, who I am today. But this is back in 1982, and it was extremely difficult for her. But she turned around and accepted me. So we spent um, four years together, 
And I proposed to her. And then about a month before to be married, a drunk driver hit us and killed her and um, put my life back down into to the very bottom of the barrel. And I started drinking and using a lot of drugs. And um, I sobered up when I came out to my mom and dad. And it turns out that they had always known and they had taken me to a psychologist when I was a young child. When I was about five years old, I had never known that they knew. And they had taken me to a psychologist um, at UCLA. And this doctor said, he's a boy. You raise him as a boy. My dad, had, um, they were planning on transitioning me at five years old. That's how much they knew about it. And so it was it was a topsy-turny, if that's what you want to say, life. It went up and down. I jumped into a marriage. I had three children, and I finally came out and said, I have to transition. It's either do or die, and I've gone for it, and now I am fully 100% happy. I'm fully post-op, and I've never been happier in my life. Access to high-quality and compassionate health care can be life-saving for many trans people, so it's essential to improve access to good trans-accepting health care. Michael Silverman told us that in the short term, organizations like GLMA, health professionals advancing LGBTQ equality, and some local LGBTQ community centers try to address this problem by directing trans patients to trans-friendly providers. Although this is valuable help, it doesn't fix the underlying problems of widespread discrimination. Greater insurance access is crucial. In order for trans patients to have access to necessary health care, all insurance plans need to cover transition-related treatment. More states need to pass laws mandating that insurance companies provide fair and equal coverage for trans patients. Both of these things have improved in recent years, but there is still a lot more work to be done. Finally, the most complex problem to address will be the actions and policies of medical providers themselves. In order for trans patients to get the proper health care they need, more providers need to become more respectful, accepting, and inclusive of trans patients. An important step is to create record-keeping policies that acknowledge trans patients and work to protect their safety, comfort, and privacy. This could include, for example, an intake form that provides more detailed options than just simple checkboxes for male and female. Dr. Bowers. Just having that sitting on an office counter, that can make a big difference to making a person feel comfortable knowing that their doctor has some insight into that. We try to enlighten them by asking that they be more inclusive in their intake form. In other words, not just listing male or female, but saying, you know, assigned birth gender and things like that rather than male or female, or talking about having a box for their current genitalia status, you know, things like that. There's there's some different options that are given. Educating staff about pronoun usage and being inviting to a person. And maybe even just a placard, you know, just say, ask me about transgender care, you know, something like that. But I think that probably, and this is what I've suggested to patients usually, is that just have a discussion with their nurse, their office nurse. Every doctor has that. And uh, just Talk to their office nurse about how do they do they handle transgender people? Do they know anything about it? How do you think they would, you know, and you can do that generically without outing yourself before you come in for the appointment. This is Outcasting, 
Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, produced in New York by Media for the Public Good, online at outcastingmedia.org. We're talking about issues faced by transgender people in getting appropriate health care because of problems in the healthcare system. Joining us for this discussion are Dr. Marcy Bowers, a transgender surgeon in California who treats trans patients, and attorney Michael Silverman. We're also joined by Jessica, Billy Ray, and Brittany, three transgender women who have experienced difficulties in dealing with the healthcare system. Policy changes alone, however, won't solve the problem of difficulties trans people face in getting good medical care. So much of the hostility and discomfort that trans people encounter in the healthcare system comes from the individual biases of healthcare providers. Our guests told us that better education is key to overcoming these biases and improving trans healthcare. Michael Silverman. Most healthcare providers report that they don't know anyone who is openly transgender. So they haven't had many opportunities to interact with or get to know anyone who's transgender. So starting from the basics about what does it mean to be transgender, who is a transgender person, and what are the appropriate cultural norms, if you will, in terms of dealing with transgender people. They're not complicated, but they may not be readily apparent to most people who haven't encountered and um, gotten to know transgender people before. Jessica told us, It is slowly changing. I mean, just accept everybody for who they are. Part of my thing is education. My issue, my personal issue with a gynecologist, I think more and more gynecologists have to be more understanding of a trans woman, post-op, pre-op, anything, mainly post-op, to learn the similarities between my vagina and a natal woman's vagina. Because there's more and more of us becoming post-op, and there's more and more need for, like, again, with my issue, to turn me down and not even look inside of me, that's that's being naive. I think that some of these people really need to open up their eyes and want to learn. Dr. Bowers. I think sometimes prejudice is based not so much on something volitional, something that they consciously, you know, they just don't like these persons. It's often rarely that, really, except, you know, certain certain parts of the country and certain places where people just have these very rigid notions of what male and female is, and they haven't really gone beyond that. But a lot of times, the prejudice just comes, you know, on the basis of ignorance. And it's just they haven't been exposed to training. They don't have information. They don't have resources. They've never met a transgender person. They've never treated a transgender person. They wouldn't know how to handle the complications, or so they think, even though they're just like any other complication or any other problem. You know, it's a myriad of reasons, but most of it is not that doctors are just bad people and don't like transgender persons. I don't think that very often is the case. It certainly is the case at times and and in some surprising places. But I just think it's a matter of needing more education. And uh, all doctors, and especially early on, you know, where we're more receptive. I've never seen a postgraduate education course as part of continuing medical education that was devoted to transgender health care. I mean, it's just extraordinary. Never seen it. Never been invited to be a speaker. Never seen it. There are countless misconceptions about being trans that exist among doctors, just as they exist among the general public. 
This lack of understanding is often the source of judgment, bias, or actions that make trans people feel unwelcome. Again, Dr. Bowers. One of the misconceptions is that uh, going through a transgender surgery or going through the process comes with a measurable degree of uh, potential buyer's remorse, as though this process is anything like having a tattoo or making a bad business transaction or uh, something of this nature. The fact is that patients who are trans feel differently gendered from a very, very early age, which empirically suggests that this is a biological process and not a psychological process. So a biological process isn't something that's likely to go away. And in fact, this is what is experienced by such patients. They spent a lot of years in denial sometimes, putting aside their transgender feelings, so that when they come through the process and they finally engage in the process and go through surgery, they're extremely unlikely to ever regret that decision. That's probably the the major misconception that is out there. The other misconception is that this is somehow about sex and not about gender. They tend to, the medical community or the lay community even, tend to conflate the two. And they think that somehow that this is somewhat analogous to being gay. But we make a clear distinction that straight or gay or whatever, that's sexual attractiveness. That's who you're attracted to. And gender identity is about who you are and who you feel yourself to be, male or female. One of the most important goals of better education for doctors on transgender issues is simply to make them more comfortable treating trans patients. If all doctors, not just certain specialized ones, become more comfortable treating trans patients, that will greatly improve the health care available to trans patients and thus increase the proportion of trans patients who have positive experiences with the health care system. So how can trans people find better health care professionals who are understanding and accepting? Dr. Bowers. The way people traditionally find doctors is just like they do for anything else. You know, you ask someone else who's been in a similar situation, number one. And number two, you you know, you can go online. There's lots of reviews now of doctors. Hospitals have referral networks of doctors. Gender identity forums or, or community clinics or psychotherapists, mental health professionals, they often have lists of people who are trans-friendly. Most LGBT centers have a preferred list of LGBT-friendly healthcare providers. There are a lot more networks for that. I think what's difficult is people in rural areas often can't find that. But it's it's actually quite encouraging when I talk to people in rural areas where they may be the only trans person in their community, and they will tell me that they their doctor who took care of them for many, many years now is treating them through their transition and they're their first trans patient. I think the value of an ongoing relationship is really, really important. It's still a bit dicey when a person wants to access health care or wants, let's say, a referral to a gastroenterologist for just routine measures, and they don't know anyone. You know, how does that person access care to someone who is going to be trans-friendly? That's a good question. But I think slowly, if we can just get more of these educational pieces in place, 
at least if a gastroenterologist goes through and they don't treat trans people at all, at least someday you're going to find that most specialties, everybody got a little exposure to it during their residency, during medical school, hopefully. And then when a person walks in and they're trans, they're like, oh, yeah, okay, we saw that. We know what to do here. It doesn't have anything to do with what I'm doing. So certainly the person can be treated. For doctors who may feel uncomfortable or unprepared treating a trans patient for the first time, there are often common-sense solutions. Rather than being preoccupied with the unfamiliar, the fact that this person is trans, it's important for a doctor to simply think through the purpose of the particular care that's needed at the time and how it applies to their patient. When providers don't take trans people seriously or focus too much on their trans status, they may not recognize that a post-op trans person needs similar care to a cisgender person of the same gender. Dr. Bowers. They need the same health care, and that's where the baseline should start. To suggest otherwise is to just perpetuate discrimination. They're female-bodied, and that's the bottom line. So if a pap smear is recommended for a cisgendered woman with a hysterectomy, then it should be offered to someone who's post-op transsexual. If a person is uh, ordering a mammogram and they would do so on a, on a cisgendered woman, then they should get a mammogram. So those things should be exactly the same. Same with bone density measures, same with cholesterol measures, same with colonoscopy routines. If they are sexually active, screening for sexually transmitted diseases can be important. This is basic stuff. They have additional health care issues. So if a prostate is in place, it's a consideration. They need to know their unique anatomic differences that they're bringing with them from their former body status. But uh, usually that's not a problem. Ultimately, whether medical professionals treat trans people well comes down to a matter of respect. Respecting the patient's gender, respecting their body, and taking their needs and concerns seriously, both medically and socially. Brittany said that providers should ask about what they need to know. I would say it's okay to ask questions, but at all times be respectful and try, like I know it's hard sometimes, but, um, you know, the medical professional, you have to be non-judgmental and, you know, somebody's telling you their story, you can't, if you show like a um, puzzled look on your face or like a, almost like a weird look on your face, like, why are you doing that? Even those nonverbal things, like, can really make somebody feel uncomfortable. My biggest thing is like just to be respectful. It's, and it's okay if you don't if you don't know if you don't understand, or even if you don't agree. At least in the capacity of being a, a medical professional, yeah. Above all else, just be respectful of people and who they are and who and how they identify. And if you're not sure, like the best thing to do is use um non-gender specific things or at least ask somebody like take somebody to the side and say hey what do you what do you prefer that I refer to you as or how do you what name should I use that way you're not making somebody feel uncomfortable in front of a lot of people and then also um, if they could take the time to research that would be even more helpful and then you can like kind of establish that rapport with that person you know right away instead of you know, having to work for it. Brittany emphasized the importance of this respect going both ways, for trans people to respect their medical providers and be patient with them. 
While it can be difficult for trans patients to bear the burden of educating their doctors by having uncomfortable conversations while they're vulnerable, it can be valuable just the same. I know it's hard and it gets frustrating, but be you know, try to be a little bit understanding because there might be somebody who has never met someone who is transgender. Like, um, you know, my first time meeting a transgender individual myself was um, when I was working, um, when I was interning at a, a psychiatric hospital. Um, even though I had my own history, I've never met, you know, I had never met somebody who was also transgender. So, um, so just be a little bit respectful, a little bit patient. Um, don't let somebody, you know, purposefully like treat you wrong, but also at the same time, if somebody does misgender you, kind of, you know, maybe take the time to take them aside and say, you know, hey, I would prefer to be called ma'am, or I would prefer to be called sir, or please use, you know, this name. Um, we've done that a lot of times at, at the hospital where that, you know, somebody would have their legal name, and of course, for insurance purposes, we would have to write the name down from their identification, but we'd also put in parentheses or whatever that they would prefer to be called, you know, whatever name they would like to be called as. So um, I think the respect thing kind of goes both ways. And while everybody is still learning, um, I think it would be helpful on both sides to be like a teacher to each other. Building a healthcare environment that is accepting and welcoming to trans people will take time, and it will require hard work from everyone involved. Insurance companies and lawmakers need to move away from discriminatory policies and move instead toward explicitly protecting trans patients. Doctors and medical schools need to take time to focus on education about what it means and what it's like to be trans and how that does or doesn't affect a patient's medical care. But in the meantime, trans people will continue to deal with inadequate care. This problem won't be solved overnight, but every step counts. Some trans patients now have insurance that covers at least some of their transition-related care, and many can find doctors that are accepting. But that's not enough. Many of the trans people who need medical care the most still face obstacles in accessing it, and they must deal with the consequences of a hostile healthcare world, on top of all the other discrimination and stress that they already deal with in society. It is vital that both standard healthcare and transition-related healthcare become more accessible to trans people, and that medical care is provided in an environment where trans people can be and feel safe. Thanks for listening to our exploration of issues faced by transgender people in getting appropriate healthcare because of problems in the healthcare system. Our guests have been Dr. Marcy Bowers, a transgender surgeon in California who treats trans patients, and Michael Silverman, an attorney who, when we recorded this interview, was the executive director of the Transgender Legal Defense and Education Fund. We were also joined by Jessica, Billy Ray, and Brittany, three transgender women who have experienced difficulties in dealing with the healthcare system. This program was written by Outcasting Youth broadcaster Andrew Two and produced with the participation of Outcasters Adam, Andrew One, Brianna, Dante, Dhruv, Jamie, Joseph, Josh, Lauren, Lester, Lucas, Max, Michael, Natasha, Nico, Nicole, Nikki, Sarah, 
Sydney, and me, Karis. Our executive producer is Mark Sofus. Outcasting is produced in New York by Media for the Public Good. More information is available at outcastingmedia.org. You can also find us wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Outcasting and connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. If you're having trouble, whether it's at home or school or just with yourself, call the Trevor Project hotline at 866-488-7386 or visit them online at thetrevorproject.org. The Trevor Project is a nonprofit organization dedicated to LGBTQ youth suicide prevention. Call them if you have a problem. Seriously, don't be scared. They even have an online chat you can use if you don't want to talk on the phone. Being different isn't a reason to hate or hurt yourself. All right, I'll say it one more time. 866-488-7386 or online at thetrevorproject.org. You can also find a link on our site, outcastingmedia.org, under Connect. I'm Karis. Thanks, and thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this edition of Outcasting, please make your tax-deductible contribution today. We can't do programs like this without your support. To make your donation, please visit us at outcastingmedia.org and click on Support. And connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. Thanks.